More and more, we are realizing the true power community has to lift up the human race in so many ways. We started this show to put the spotlight on community organizations, to highlight their contributions, and to share insights on the importance of community. Every week, tune in as our host, Stu Starkey, helps raise awareness around one of the most important aspects in all of our lives. Welcome to the community of Big Hearts. Welcome back, everybody, to the community of Big Hearts. This week, we are here with uh, Jamil Mahmood. I'm really excited to chat with him about his new endeavor with the Main Street Project. Jamil, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm really excited to, to have you, Jamil. After I started doing a little bit of research on you, I became quite a fan. Um, I loved your your decision, your passion um, on supporting your community of Winnipeg, uh, seeing a need, uh, and then going to figure it out, figure out the problem. And you've really, what seems like, devoted your life to it. Before we get into Main Street Project, I would love to know just a little bit more about you and your background for our listeners here. Yeah, so um, I'm a Winnipegger, born and raised. I grew up in East Kildonan, um, basically lived downtown after being 18. Uh, love just, I love the downtown core area of our city. Yeah. It's my home and I, I love it. Uh, it's such a, a vibrant city. So uh I uh, have a degree in international development studies from the University of Winnipeg. Um, in the time while I was doing my degree, I had the opportunity to go work uh, overseas. So I worked in, uh, in Pakistan um, for about four months, working with um, landless people there, helping them set up non-formal education schools and housing and, and that kind of stuff. And then um, I got another opportunity to go Go work in Ecuador, and I worked there for about a year, working with street youth, um, setting up uh, kind of non-formal education program, but also kind of uh, employment opportunities where we would kind of like bulk buy stuff that they would sell in the streets or uh, on buses and things like that. So I learned a lot in that those experiences. I uh, came back to finish my degree and happened to to land in a job at Spence Neighborhood Association as the community garden worker for the summer and. I uh, just just fell in love with that work and slowly started adding, you know, programs on youth programs. And at the time, uh, the organization had about eight eight staff, eight to twelve staff, and uh, I just like just found my passion there and working with community. And uh, I had intended to go work uh, overseas in the future, but just found, um, you know, a lot of same development challenges that we have in our city that uh, I learned about and experienced internationally. So. I, you know, this is my home and so I want to work where I'm from and, and then just started doing that and got a lot, a lot of work with uh, youth, uh, gang involved youth, um, you know, really a lot of trying to get into gang, gang prevention work. I, um, I worked for six years as the youth coordinator at Spence Neighborhood, then I became the executive director for the next nine or 10 years. Um, I, I was the chair of the gang action interagency network for a long time and, and so I think uh, really kind of fell in love with this work of not-for-profit uh, community development and um, the work of really having an impact on a community level for for those most vulnerable in our city. And uh, so that's really where, uh, you know, my passion for the city. And then after, you know, 10 years at Spence Neighbors Association, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to do something different. I wanted a bigger challenge, a bigger 
area, a big area of focus. Um, and so I, I took a little bit of break and got a job with the uh, Winnipeg Regional Health Authority as an outreach worker doing street outreach, harm reduction street outreach and uh, through the Street Connections program in the van there. So I was on the street every evening um, for the last year and a half doing that kind of outreach frontline work, which I love, but uh, I was missing this kind of broader passion uh, for, you know, um, kind of developing programs, developing uh, models, response, you know, that uh, developing a bigger response than just the street level outreach piece. And then this position at Main Street Project came and I was waiting for something to kind of uh, my next big challenge. And, and then this came up and I jumped at the opportunity and I'm here now three months in and I've loved every single second here. So I'm super excited to be in this role. Short, long story. <laughs> you know, that, that's um, a really amazing and cool arc. And I'm sure there's so many cool stories of impact that you've had over the last, sounds like about 17 years, helping the, the Winnipeg's most vulnerable. Um, I, I do want to highlight here that the purpose of the podcast here is to highlight Main Street Project, get them the attention they deserve. So would you mind telling us a little bit more about um, the programs that, that Main Street program, uh, Project offers? I know you've only been there for three months, but uh, do your best here to highlight the impact. Yeah, Main, Main Street's a pretty big operation, so there's lots of moving pieces. Um, so uh, I'll start with our, our, our emergency shelter, our low barrier shelter. So we're a, a community health center that you know, supports people with physical, mental issues, substance issues, and homelessness. Uh, so we operate an emergency shelter. Um, I'll maybe talk a little bit later about how we kind of ended up where we're at, because we had a lot of changes this year because of COVID. But right now we're at the Mitchell Fabrics building at uh, 637 Main Street. Uh, pretty iconic building, I think, in Winnipeg, corner of Logan and Maine. Um, and there we offer a 120-bed shelter. And so we're uh, 24 hours a day. We only close uh, for one hour in the morning and uh, one hour in the afternoon to clean and you know transition the space a bit. Um, we're, um, so we offer a low barrier. That means that we don't... Uh, People can kind of come in whatever state they're in and we accept them regardless of if they're, you know, and they're intoxicated or whatever state they may be in. We kind of take everybody in. So we're kind of the often the last last resort for folks before they're out on the streets um, or the, the last kind of safe place for folks who are homeless and, and need a place to sleep or shelter space. So um, the facility is, is amazing. Uh, we renovated really quickly over, you know, six months to be open. We opened December 16th and we've been full every night. Um, as of April 1st, um, we'll have a combined male identified and female identified uh, shelter all in the one location. So we'll have 90 male identified beds and uh, 30 female identified beds. So we're also gonna be trying out some kind of new space. Uh, we're gonna have designated space for female identified folks, but then have some space for couples or kind of groups of people that, that stay together for safety reasons. We wanna be able to find a way, often shelters kind of divide people into like, into, you know, um, different spaces. And we want to, we, we have a little bit of room to kind of see what it's like to give people an opportunity to stay together, which we hope will kind of be a good response for why people choose to stay out on the street or in encampments or that because they, they can't stay with their partner or they can't stay with uh, their group of people that they, they rely on for safety and protection. So we hope that we can kind of build that in our shelter space. 
Um, and then we offer kind of the standard, you know, food and clothing. Uh, we have uh, we have 10 washrooms and six showers, which is huge. Uh, this time last year, we were running out of our 75 Martha building with 70 mats on the floor, three washrooms and one shower. So we've really kind of done this huge upgrade. Now everyone sleeps on cots with mattresses, uh, way more washrooms, way more showers, like really kind of making sure there's real options for people to be safe and have this kind of dignified space where they can access food, clothing, shower, uh, and care from, from our staff and community. So uh, it's been a big change as the space is super open and bright and um, we can't really bring people on tours or show people because of COVID, but uh, like it's it's day and night to what we were used to be able to provide shelter last year. So we're super excited to be in this building and um, have, been, have been able to do this work to get the shelter up and running in that space. Uh, so that's our kind of drop-in shelter program. Uh, then we run uh, casework. We have a 10 casework uh, staff that do wraparound support. So they work with folks that come to shelter uh, or folks that get referred to us from the community, provide wraparound supports to help people get housed, make sure, you know, try to make sure they don't need shelter anymore, uh, make sure they have access to proper medical care and and they they're get supports getting on EIA or whatever kind of financial supports they need. So they kind of provide a kind of holistic wraparound support for uh, folks that get into the their caseloads and, and so that's a case management approach there. Um, so it's kind of another, it's it's not, you know, it's not a standalone program. It kind of touches all the areas, but it kind of, it's an overarching kind of uh, project we have going on in the agency. Um, and then we provide uh, uh, detox uh, or uh, withdrawal services. We have uh, 40 detox beds at our 75 Martha building. And then we have 26 uh, for female identified folks at River Point. Um, and so detox is super important for folks that are, are you know, dealing with addiction and need a, an opportunity to, to kind of go through that withdrawal phase. And uh, often uh, our detox is, doesn't cost anything, it's free. And so I think we're one of the few free detoxes available for folks and often you need to detox before you can get into addiction treatment. So um, having that service is essential for folks to kind of go on that path of addiction recovery and get the treatment they need. So we're kind of a key component of that. Um, and then we do um, transitional housing. We have two uh, spaces. We have uh, mainstay housing, which is at our 75 Martha building. And then we have the Bell Hotel, which is across the street on Main Street. Uh, another kind of iconic building on Main Street there where we offer transitional housing spaces in, in both those. So that gives people opportunity, maybe they're coming out of detox, need a place to live or, or they're, they're, you know, transitioning from uh, the shelter into housing so these are kind of spaces where they're not long-term stays necessarily it gives them people a chance to get say you know get their footing get their finances in order and uh and be able to move into more permanent housing so those are super essential services for us to get uh transitional housing uh opportunities for folks in in the community and then we do uh a food bank program. We we have our, our main floor at our 661 Main Street building, which is um, my office, our administration office is on the second floor, but our main floor is a, our food bank space. And, um, you know, we take a little bit of a different approach to food bank. We kind of set up like a little grocery store. So uh, folks can register through Manitoba Harvest and then uh, come down. And on Thursdays, they get to kind of, you know, shop around and kind of choose what they get in their kind of in their hampers which gives them, you know, that experience of being able to choose the things you want or, you know, what your family eats. You can kind of make those choices. So it's a little more like a shopping experience than just a, 
um, a food bank kind of experience. And then we also provide just general hampers for folks that need emergency food to go. Uh, we have a clothing bank program. Um, obviously we, we provide a lot of clothes to folks who are using shelter, give them opportunity to get clean clothes or new clothes when they need it. Um, and you know, Winnipeg is such a great place. Our clothing program is always so full. We, uh, we actually can't always take all the donations that come, come our way. And um, that's one of the beauties of Winnipeg and the people here, they, they're so generous and uh, so we, uh, the only, we have a kind of limit of what we accept right now. We mostly take underwear, uh, jeans and sweaters, those kind of uh, core kind of need items. But uh, yeah, we have an overflowing kind of space that we can't, uh, can't keep up with all the donations, which is a good problem to have. Uh, and so we have a program to make sure that all of our programs have access to clothes and anyone who comes to our, our spaces, if they need clothes, whether it's, you know, underwear, socks, jeans, those kind of things. We always have that for folks uh, who need it. Um, and then we run um, our van outreach program. So we have a van that's uh, on the street 24 hours a day. Um, the van does a couple things. It It's kind of an emergency kind of crisis response. So it's out there if they come across people on the side of the street or something that need help, they're there to help them. Uh, we provide food, clothing, and harm reduction supplies to folks. Um, we do a lot of response to encampments. Uh, we work with the city. Um, if people call about encampment, they'll usually get referred to us and we'll go check it out and see what those folks need, see if they, you know, provide them with food and, food and clothing and stuff and figure out if there's a better place for them to stay or can we transition them over somewhere if they want to, if they want to move somewhere else, we'll help them with that process. Uh, we also provide a volunteer transport to uh, Winnipeg Police Service, Winnipeg Fire Paramedics. So if the police are called, um, and the person there doesn't need a, you know, need to be detained, or if it's the fire paramedics, if they don't need an emergency ride to hospital, our van will come and pick up folks and bring them back to shelter or take them home or take them wherever they need to go. Um, so we kind of have this partnership with the city where we provide voluntary transport for their, their services. So they call us, 311 calls us, you know, we get this. Um, so our van covers the whole city and is out there all the time. Um, and then we do uh, protect, we, protective care service as well. So uh, the city of uh, the police, with the partnership with the Winnipeg Police Service, um, they when people are intoxicated and uh, are detained by the police, um, instead of them, you know, getting locked up, we we provide safe sobering place for them. So the police will bring them to us. We'll you know we'll bring them in. We'll allow them to sober up safely, and then when they're good to go, we'll send them on their way. So it kind of avoids people getting arrested for for being intoxicated in public and uh, gives them a safe place and then plugs them into kind of all of our services. So if they need to go to shelter or go to another space, we connect them to that. Um, yeah, so that is uh, a very quick summation of Street Project's operation. About four services ago, I was thinking, wow, this is a really holistic approach to how you take care of the most vulnerable. Um, that's incredible how you, you've tackled it from so, so many angles. And I guess um, when I looked you guys up, you guys have been um, in operation since 1972. So that makes sense that you've had time to develop and figure out where the needs are needed most and, and develop solutions to those problems. I'd love to know a little bit about the, like the, the core founding principles and, and how it's changed over the years. If you know that history, and, and then also how it's changed over the last uh, 12 months. Yeah, I'm not super like up to date on all the history stuff, but I know the core uh, principles is to, you know, really meet people where they're at. 
um, and give them and, and support them in what they need. Like we let, we're not here to tell someone how to live or, or how to, what choices to make. We're here to just support people. They're, they're in whatever state they're in there. Their life has led them to wherever their, their journey is at now. And we're not here to judge or, or provide any you know, judgment on people. We're here to just support people. So we, we provide emergency services. We provide care. We, you know, we are here to listen and provide what people need. Um, and I think that's been the, the, the same kind of mission since it started is to make sure that we met people where they were at and provided a, a response to folks in, in crisis who are homeless or suffering with addiction or mental health challenges. We're kind of the, the kind of last resort on the, the path for a lot of people. And, and I mean, it's pretty tough. Uh, folks can be, you know, everyone, uh, you know, everyone's always kind of one paycheck away or one, you know, crisis incident away from being, you know, un unsheltered or unhoused. And we need lots of different kind of options and response. And so Main Street Project has been here for, you know, next year's 50 years of being a place for folks to be uh, judgment-free and, and just provide emergency response services to them. And um, I think we still live those values today and, and they're kind of at the core and they're, they're the reason we're still around after almost 50 years, so. Now you guys are obviously doing great things in our community. Uh, now I want to get to the to the real impact. And I love going over stats and then stories um, of impact your organization has. So I, I don't know if you came prepared with some statistics to share uh, the impact that uh, you guys are having at Main Street. Yeah, I have I have some. They're they're big numbers. So <laughs> trying to text so. Um, I think I'll just kind of go through the list I have here. So um, in, a, in a year, we take about 12,000 people in through protective care. Um, we see about 10,000 shelter visits in, in a month. So that's, you know, it varies wow. throughout a month. We'll see about 10,000, uh, you know, visits, um, you know, and those are, you know, people come back regularly. So it's not 10,000 individuals, but it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to shelter about 10,000 people in a month, 10,000 unique visits. Uh, we've had two, we have about 2,000 intakes in our withdrawal management services for detox a year. Um, in, uh, oh, I, sorry, I forgot to mention, we, we also run um, all the isolation for the homeless sector for COVID response. Mm isolation centers I forgot to mention that because that's a you know kind of an added service we added because of the pandemic but uh, yeah so since we've started uh, running uh, pandemic uh, isolation spaces um, we in the, it's been almost exactly a year uh, we opened April 8th our first uh, isolation uh, space and uh, we've seen 12,000 intakes uh, sorry 1200 that's yeah, 1200 intakes in isolation so you know that uh, you know that number is is interesting to think about uh, because it it those are people who have tested positive or were symptomatic um, who are in the homeless population that we were able to provide a safe place to isolate um, and really like being able to provide isolation saved so many lives during yeah. the pandemic in the homeless population all the trajectory uh, all the the stats all the modeling that the epidemiologists did said. You know, the homeless sector will get hit the hardest. We'll see the most deaths in there outside of seniors. And uh, and we saw it in other cities, but we were able to dramatically expand our shelter space. So we, you know, we opened our, our, a temporary shelter during 
the height of COVID to have to, to over 200 beds. Um, and then we were able to open the isolation spaces. So we really, um, we had a couple of, of outbreaks in, uh, in November, October, but we were really able to keep that number super low and save so many lives from COVID in, in our community just by being able to open the isolation spaces. So um, thinking that 1200 people that would have been kind of just left out there or been uh, trying to get into a shelter now, we're, we're safe, isolated, safely recovered. And uh, and then that spread isn't happening in our in our population. So that's a, a big one, especially in a lot of people's minds around COVID and um, our team really stepped up to really address a lot of those challenges in the, in the homelessness sector. Uh, we provide, uh, our food bank provides over 100 uh, uh, services to over 100 families each week. Um, and then our van uh, mobile patrol um, sees about 100 people a day on average wow. uh, to provide support. Um, and those are, you know, people who are sleeping rough, people living in encampments, maybe staying in bus shelter uh, out on the street, uh, you know. Um, and then when, uh, during this cold weather uh you know, the recent, the recent, I mean, it's hard as Winnipeg to ever forget the cold weather, but uh, the recent few weeks we had where it dropped, you know, below minus 30 there, um, we were receiving 100 calls per shift. We have three van shifts in a day. And so we're taking over 300 calls a day for response, wellness checks, um, checking on people out, out in the cold. And, um, and we couldn't, we couldn't handle that on our own. And so one of the great things about Winnipeg is there's lots of other folks doing great outreach work. So we were able to act as a little bit of a coordinating body because we have our, our phone numbers out there for folks to call the van. And so we were able to work with the other outreach patrols when they're on the street, we were able to, you know, if it was in the West End, we called the, the West Central Women's Resource Center Outreach Patrol, or if it was in St. B, we call St. Moffat Street Links. We we're connecting with Mama Bear Clan, you know, so we were able to, well, we couldn't respond to the over the, the overwhelming, you know, Winnipeggers didn't want to see anyone out in the cold, neither did we, uh, but we were able to kind of be at that one touch point to then coordinate a lot of the other outreach groups so they could, you know, if we couldn't get to the West End, we had a group to go do that. And uh, that's one of the great things about this work and what I'm so excited about being here is, is how do we build these, these awesome partnerships and networks so we're just working together as a broader community. It doesn't matter which agency it is, it's about what's best for the people and what's needed out there. And so we were really able to take those 300 calls and make sure every single one um, that needed a check, we were able to send someone, whether us or another partner, out to respond to that. And uh, and so, yeah, like, while there wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't a warming hut that opened um, outside of kind of our core uh, ones, there was, you know, there's probably a need for some something like that. That didn't happen. So we were able to coordinate, making sure that outreach supports got there. We were able to transport folks to where they went. And then we were able to work with smaller volunteer groups as well. I know there's a great group uh, initiative that set up uh a camp at the Thunderbird house for, you know, I think it was almost two weeks there. And they took a lot of people into their, their teepees and, and tents with fires and kept folks warm. So we were, we were super privileged and felt lucky to be a part of that response and be able to be a part of coordinating, making sure Winnipeggers didn't get left out in the cold in, uh, in extreme weather. I can't imagine how scary that would have been to be outside and see no reprieve. And how good that must have felt for you to be able to help and coordinate that help to save people's lives. Um, I'm, I'm sure, unfortunately, there was probably some fatalities because of it. I can't imagine myself surviving that period of time outside um, alone without help. Jamil, I got uh, some rapid fire questions I want to go over here with you. Uh, some of them you've answered already. So 
there's just a few left here. So how many people work um, for Main Street and how many volunteers do you have on an annual basis? Yeah, so um, our, like it's a little skewed this year because of isolation. We have a lot of staff that we brought on. Our average uh, staff is about 115 people. Right now we're at uh, 211 wow. with all the action and, you know, we had staff there. So, um, you know, I think this year the, the number will be about one, 150, kind of our core staff. Uh, how many volunteers did you typically uh, have volunteering with Main Street? It's so tricky. Uh, we always try to quantify this and, uh, you know, it's it's in the it's thousands, maybe even close to, you know, five to 10,000. It's been tricky this past year because of COVID. We, we had to shut down a lot of our volunteer opportunities for folks. And, uh, and so, you know, I think we have a, you know, a core of, of maybe a hundred that are still working with us now in very socially distanced, safe ways. Uh, you know, we have volunteers doing stuff from home for us. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to get a firm number what we see annually. And then with COVID, it's been a, a tricky year for volunteers, but I, I will tell you that we were, we were considering maybe having to close down our food bank because it's all volunteer ran um, because we, we didn't know if we could run it safely with socially distanced and uh, our volunteers would not not show up. <laughs> we tried to get them to stop uh, and they just said, no, we're coming. This is too important. We got to make sure people have food and so we had to figure out ways to keep them distanced and and get them the right PPE so that everyone can be safe in, in their work and stagger times and do all that. But uh, yeah, our volunteers are so amazing, and uh, and yeah, they won't uh, they won't they won't ever stop on us. Even even if we try to stop them, they keep coming and figure new ways to do it. Uh, and we all had to kind of everyone during COVID had to kind of be really creative and inventive in how we did stuff. And our volunteers are no exception. Uh, I was curious on the on the ninety thirty split on the new beds on on uh, the Mitchell Fabrics. Uh, facility you got 90 male beds 30 female beds I'm sure there's thought that went into that um, is that basically the kind of the breakdown of the the sex demographic that are looking for places to sleep yeah it, it's close you know it's, so this year we had a real interesting arc so I think that, like I will say you know we really the city really needs a female identified shelter um, separate space like there's some you know there's a lot of challenges with having mixed and co-ed spaces right so I think um, overall we need to we need to have a, a dedicated female identified shelter whether that's us running it or, or a partner agency or or you know a new initiative to take that on um, we just don't have the capacity to, like we, so I'll give you the arc of kind of where our shelter went during COVID so we we had 70 mats uh, where we had about I think it was 60, no, 55 male identified mats and 15 female identified mats uh, at our 75 Martha shelter. Um, and then when COVID hit, we had an amazing businessman step up and uh, provide us with 190 Disraeli, a huge warehouse there to provide uh, socially distanced shelter in. And so we were able to expand that. We were able to provide uh, 200 shelter, over 200 shelter beds on two different floors. Um, obviously it was a warehouse so not an ideal space overall but it allowed us to socially distance and as I mentioned earlier that really allowed us to save a lot of lives and and keep from COVID from spreading in in the homeless population but so we had uh, so that's where we really were able to have a dedicated female identified shelter space on the second floor there and um, 
In December, we transitioned, uh, we opened Mitchell Fabrics. We moved all the male identified folks into Mitchell Fabrics. We've kept the female identified shelter open at 190 Disraeli, but that's closing at uh, March 31st. Um, all the funding's kind of ran out for that piece and um, we just can't afford to run two full shelter staffs overnight. Mm -hmm. So, um, but so now we, we, we had about, we had 60 beds available there. We average is we saw about 30 to 35 women, uh, female identified folks a night. So, um, so it's, it's not far off what we were seeing. Um, we also know that with the temperature warming up, we'll, we'll probably see a few less folks because um, people have more options kind of when it's not super cold like it was in the winter. So um, we think we're kind of in the target. Uh, we're also like, we know we could, you know, always have more beds and more beds, but we, we, are not, we don't want to be in the business of just building, again, you know, massive shelter kind of industrial complex where we have hundreds upon hundreds of shelter beds. Really, shelter is a Band-Aid response. It's an emergency service. Um, the solution to homelessness is housing and uh and so we really want, we really hope that like, we're happy to provide what we can, but we hope that more broadly as a, a society, we really look at investing in, you know, better housing options for low income or, or, or transitional housing options or supportive housing options. It gets people so they don't need to use shelters. And, um, you know, we'd be happy to work ourselves out of that, that line of work and not have to provide emergency shelter. I know we're, we're a little ways off from that being a reality, but um, that's our, our overall goal and then kind of the work we work on is to to get people so they don't need emergency shelter anymore so you know we're net you know net some beds we're 50 beds more than we had this time last year so we've kind of increased that overall number but uh, yeah it's uh, it's it's a challenge to kind of figure out what the exact amount of shelter beds are needed versus what uh, what we should be doing in terms of providing more transitional housing options Hopefully with um, COVID, uh, knock on wood, being at the, the tail end here and, and being able to open up uh, certain types of services that it might, may allow you know, certain parts of the demographic to be employed again and, and not need those services. I think hopefully this year is an aberration on why you're, you're seeing a higher demand on your services and you'll go back to a normal level or below um, if you guys continue to do um, what you've set out to do is not just provide those beds, but provide a way to, to get out of needing those beds. That's, um, uh, that's, that's, yeah, again, so awesome what you guys do, just reflecting on that. Um, I want to um, ask um, you what our listeners can do for Main Street Project. I saw the brochure of the four ways that people can help Main Street Project. Um, so maybe you just want to touch on those things or if there's anything else, uh, let us know. Yeah, so there's lots of, there's a few good options and, uh, you know, and we definitely feel the love from Winnipeg and uh, like Winnipeggers are amazing. And, and I say this all the time that I always feel so lucky that we have such amazing support in Winnipeg. And, um, and so um, people want to make donations, um, you know, we accept all kind of forms of, of, you know, cash donations or, you know, checks. And we're just at the tail end of a fundraiser right now. We did an Into the Cold, a DIY walk where folks could do that. Um, but we also have an opportunity now uh, that if folks want to organize their own little fundraisers, we have some software that allows them to set up their own 
uh, like a website and it provides them to track donations as they come in. And so they, if anyone's interested in doing their own, you know, peer-based fundraising or, you know, if someone wants to, you know, walk, uh, you know, 10 miles a day and get people to make donations mm -hmm. to support them, we, have, uh, we now have the abilities to, to work with folks to set up their own individual fundraisers directly to us and um, they can build website and integrate with social media really well. So it kind of gives folks an opportunity to do their own thing or participate in some of the larger ones we do. Uh, we're just wrapping up our into the cold fundraising walk where we were at about $33,000 raised for the month of March and that ends in, uh, on March 31st. And so our target was 30,000 and we've exceeded it. I'm sure we'll get well over that by the time the end of the month comes around. But um, yeah, so there's, there's always options to, to do that or organize your own kind of fundraising now that we have this software to allow us to let people set up their own little mini fundraisers or uh, fundraising events. Um, you can donate directly through, at our offices or, or through our website, um, get involved volunteering. Volunteering, uh, you know, we've, as I said before, we've had to kind of limit the opportunities, but, um, you know, hopefully as we raise out of kind of the restriction levels, we can uh, present more opportunities to get involved in, uh, you know, in our in volunteering in our programs and services. Uh, in terms of donation of items, we're always uh, looking for underwear, socks, um, jeans, sweaters, those kind of core stuff. We, um, you know, we, we can't really take, uh, you, know, you know, the more fashionable dresses or things like that don't really have a lot of purpose for us. So we're really just looking for kind of the core, core basic needs, clothing items. And we need, uh, we always need bottled water. Uh, we provide a ton of bottle bottle water, and I, I wish I had that number because it's, you know, we we're, we go through pallets of bottled water to make sure everyone has them, whether it's in protective care and shelter, out on the streets, outreach team. So we're always in need of bottled water. We did a we, World Water Day was a couple of weeks ago, and we were able to get a bunch of donations and and of water from Winnipeggers for that. Um, <clears throat> And then, um, yeah, the food items is always great. Um, if they're in packaging, you know, we have kind of the limitations of what we can't accept. We can't always accept everything, but uh, yeah, there's some good ways. Um, folks can reach out to us and we can kind of direct them to the best ways to make donations or if they have ideas. We're always open also. People also have really cool ideas of ways we haven't thought of. So if you have an idea and want to run that by us and see if it'll work, we're super open and happy to kind of take that uh, new challenges on, on ways for people to volunteer or get involved. Um, I know we had someone call the other day who had a, a they had like a skill set they'd worked in like government in, in another province and wanted to help us, you know, write some reports and do some some of the kind of that administration side of things. And so we always, uh, always people are always surprised with ways that they, they skills they have that they can lend us to help uh, make our operations better. So there's always a lot of operations and obviously all that's listed on our website that folks can check out. That last part is just our biggest passion and, and hopefully we'll, we'll get together on some ideas on, you know, everyone's got a skill set to provide and, and we feel so passionately that's the best way to give back to your community. So uh, again, why we created the volunteer app is, is um, businesses with a certain set of skills and infrastructure to, to give back in, in that most uh, impactful way that costs them at least just a little bit of time and hopefully that's going to be on work time where the business is generous enough to donate that time and we actually find that the employees that end up doing that time through the business end up becoming come back to the business more productive than they were before so the business doesn't actually lose any actual productive time they gain 
while giving back to the community. We find it a win-win and we'd love to, to work with you on that uh, coming up here soon. That's awesome. Last two questions and my, my favorite part of the podcast here. So you got a really amazing story and I'll just ask for like a couple minute version of why community is so important to you. Yeah, that's a, that's, I could talk for hours. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's everything, right? It's how we, um, I think it's just how we live, right? It's, it's the, the core of what we do, how we connect with people. Um, you know, I think you should always, society should always be judged by how we treat our most vulnerable people. And I think the way to treat people well is to build community around them. I mean, we can, you could throw money at problems and you can throw items at people or you know like uh, uh, but it doesn't address that core need for for love and care and compassion and support and uh, community allows you to build that beyond uh, a service we might provide here or a service someone else provides or you know the opportunity to, to build a relationship and have that connection and I mean, it's tough, tough with COVID, you know, I'm sure you've, you've seen it or you've heard it uh, and the folks you talk to that COVID isolated people, kept people apart. And, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of strain on people's mental health and their abilities, but community builds that back. And I've seen so many great ways for our folks who kind of found ways to build community online or in socially distanced ways that just, you know, give people that, that little bit of sense of someone's out there, someone cares for you, someone's here for you. That's what community is it's it's beyond uh an, an item or a thing or you know it's everything it's thinking about like community you know local restaurants surrounded by families that support endless people who need an extra meal because they can't afford it can just walk into a place like eat hot bread and get a free loaf of bread or you know there's all these great things that build community it's not just you know not just not-for-profits not just charities not just um you know, it's it's every it's every aspect. It's community schools. It's uh, it's businesses. It's it's everybody working together and building the community we want to have. And that's the best best thing about community is that it uh, it's not something it's something you build uh, collaboratively and that everyone can participate in it. No matter where you're at, you're you're a part of a community. You can participate in your local neighborhood. You can participate in you know your your group of friends. You know your your, your folks on uh, folks that do similar hobbies as you. There's so many different ways to connect community, but uh, it doesn't cost anything, and it it brings so much to people's lives, and um, and that's how we actually will build our way out of any of these uh, social challenges we face. Is is to build strong communities that that support people, you know right around you know beyond having a shelter bed but having someone to listen to you hear your problems and help you work through that right that's what community does and and that's what i i love about it is it gives you the chance to make real change um and have such a huge impact we can all feel your passion uh for that jamil um really really want to appreciate uh, thank you and appreciate all the effort and years that you've put into making our community here in winnipeg better uh, so thank you. And I want to move on to the last question here. I want to hear again, just kind of a, a two minute story about the the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you. Yeah, that, this was hard. I mean, there's so many, <laughs> so many things, you know, like, and that's, a, that's the part about, you know, loving and community is you, 
have all these different people throughout your life that uh, have these impacts on you, whether it's, you know, I was in Boy Scouts, a Boy Scout leader, a basketball coach. Um, so I, I found this question really hard to find one, uh, one story to think about our example, but, uh, you know, I think I, I, I'd have to say it's my mom. I think, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, everybody who has a, a mom in their life, uh, has a, you know, a different connection with them, but my mom was a super uh, passionate person. She was a nurse and, uh, you know, there's times when my, my dad lost his job and she was working doubles at the hospital. And, you know, my mom would always take that extra second, even if she was exhausted. And, you know, as a kid, you don't realize how exhausted your parents are all the time. But uh, yeah, like she would always take the time to make sure she checked in, even if she worked an overnight, she'd you know, wake me up in the morning and, you know, chat with me and tell me she loved me and, you know, get, send me off on the day in the right way. And, um, you know, there's, uh, I, have, I have four siblings and so we're, you know, big family of six. And um, there was this, this time that I got to go out to, we always go to Clear Lake and camp uh, in the summer. And uh, I don't know how it worked out, but it worked out that I got to go on a hike with just my mom alone. And that's pretty rare when you have siblings they are all around the same age. Uh, and I just remember, um, she, you know, my mom cared so much about me and, and my story and what was happening in, in my life. And, uh, and you know, we went on this, we got lost and uh, couldn't find our way back. And it ended up being a, a 30 minute hike turned into a four hour hike. And, uh, but it just like, it made me really understand the kind of kindness you can provide someone by just listening and, you know, asking questions about themselves. And uh, it's really easy to get caught up in, in yourself and your own challenges and, everything life presents, uh, but, but uh, to take the time, even, you know, even when you're stressed or, or tired or whatever, to just listen to people, hear them and, and show them that love and, and uh, support, I think is those, uh, that's, I think, you know, had a huge impact on my life. And I, I take that very seriously. And in my role here as a leader, as a director in an organization, um, to make sure I listen to the people in our organization, the people coming through our doors and, um, and that's how, how the organization works as well, to be uh, a place for kindness and compassion, no matter where, where folks are at in their journeys, that we're here to, to provide love, care, and support. And, yeah, and so I think, I, think I, don't know if that, I don't know if that hits the story you're looking for. It really it's does. Uh, Jamil, it, it's so interesting uh, when, when you summed it up in the end. It's just about um, loving and giving time and listening. And that's been a, a real trend um, for the last few guests. When given time to think about this question, that is seemingly what guests are boiling it down to is the kindest thing someone can do for others is, is giving them just um, someone that'll listen to them. But, uh, I really appreciate you sharing that, Jamil. Jamil Mahmood from Main Street Project. Uh, you're amazing. Keep doing what you do. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on this Community Spotlight. If you're a volunteer or leader who knows of someone or is someone contributing in your community, we want to hear from you. Go to communityofbighearts.com and click the Nominate tab and let us know who they or you are. We look forward to speaking with you. Thank you again for tuning into the Community of Big Hearts. Yeah.